I'm Inez Stepman. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad for Common Good and Common Sense Meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So today we're going to obviously continue uh, our, our coverage and analysis of what we all agreed last week was a Rubicon crossing moment uh, of the raid at Mar-a-Lago. Um, so we're going to start off with Josh, who's going to update us on what's happened in the last week. Um, and then we're going to turn to Ben, who is going to give us a, a like the a rebuttal perhaps to uh, the, the victim card now being played by those agencies that carried out the raid. Um, then I'm going to discuss Salman Rushdie's attempted murder uh, and, and why that seems so different today than, or it hits different today than it did um, initially, uh, let's say 20, 30 years ago. And um, Emily is going to close us out by talking about the one year anniversary of another American uh, sort of embarrassment, um, the, the botched Afghanistan withdrawals. So um, with that, I'll, I'll kick it over to, to Josh to, to lead us off here. Okay, so we're recording this on Tuesday morning. The current debate that is being, uh, you know, volleyed back and forth in discourse right now is whether to unseal the affidavit leading up to the warrant. So to kind of just take a few steps back and kind of see how we got to this point. So the raid obviously happened last Monday. We spent an entire podcast episode kind of giving our various takes and angles on this unprecedented incursion into the private home of, of a former president of the United States. A few days went by and there was speculation as to how high up the food chain this would go. Finally, three days later on Thursday, Attorney General Merrick Garland has a very terse and cursory press conference, you might say. It was probably no more than four to five minutes in length. Remarkably, I thought defensive and defiant in tone. He rejected kind of the scuttlebutt that he had not personally authorized the raid. He went so far as to say that to affirm that he did authorize the raid. He, he really actually, I think, uh, was most remarkable to me about that press conference was just kind of the vigor with which he criticized those who were in turn criticizing the FBI, you know, as if as if the FBI is innocent, right? I mean, I, you know, Ben has covered this more than probably anyone in the entire conservative commentary class over the past few years, but going back to Jim Comey and Chris Ray and the Hillary Clinton emails and Kevin Kleinsmith and Michael Sussman, I mean, like the FBI, uh, going all the way back to the, at least this, as far as, this, as the Steele dossier and its complicit role in the propagation of that. That is very, very, very far from innocent. So I thought that was just pretty remarkable from Merrick Garland. So one day, one day later, last Friday, you know, we finally see uh, so, some pages of court filings, including a warrant from a from a legal perspective. You know, this warrant was incredibly sweeping. It was incredibly broad. It kind of, it actually, to me, it kind of smacked of exactly the sort of so-called general warrant that really kind of angered and provoked the American colonists back in the 1760s and 1770s. Kind of a personal aside, I actually I was up in New England um, about a week and a half ago. I was in Boston, and then I had a wedding up in kind of Bunkport, Maine. But when I was in Boston, I actually went to the Boston Tea Party kind of like museum and reenactment. And when I saw the this warrant that was unsealed um, on Friday, I kind of thought back to the Boston Tea Party reenactment, because this literally is the kind of general warrant, frankly, that I think inspired in many ways um, the American Revolution and sub subsequently the ratification of the Fourth Amendment with its prohibition against unreasonable searches and seizures, which was literally put into place to prevent exactly this sort of general warrant. By the way, quick aside, but speaking of the weaponization of the Biden FBI, you know, when John Eastman's phone was seized in New Mexico, where he lives about a month and a half, two months ago, whenever that was, 
he went on Tucker Carlson's Fox News show and he actually described his warrants in exactly the same way. He said it was incredibly broad and sweeping. This is not how warrants are supposed to work. So there are lots and lots and lots of unanswered questions here. Unfortunately, I think that we still have more unanswered questions than we have answers. A few things. One is, why was the subpoena process not enough? We still don't know what happened there. The Trump team claims they were fully cooperating. We know, thanks to the to Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, that there was a subpoena offered in June. But it seems that subsequent to the subpoena, multiple boxes of uh, contested um, information were brought out of Mar-a-Lago. So by all indications, it seems the Trump team was complying with it. So why was this, why was the subpoena not enough? For that matter, if you had to go beyond a subpoena, why was a civil lawsuit not enough? Why did they have to actually get this criminal raid in order? The judge in question here, of course, the magistrate judge, Bruce Reinhardt, it turns out he actually recused himself from a civil lawsuit back in June, I think it was, between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton because of a conflict of interest. Because if you go back to his prolific social media posting on this matter, he has a 2017 Facebook post where he's saying that Donald Trump is not fit to kiss John Lewis's feet. So why did he see himself, you know, fit to recuse himself from the civil lawsuit, but not the, you know, not to recuse himself when the FBI and DOJ sought a search warrant in, in unprecedented fashion. So that question remains unanswered. A final question, two other final questions that remain unanswered for me, and then I'll kind of kick it open to you guys. One is for the president of the United States as a basic constitutional matter has plenary authority to declassify whatever he wants to. Article two, commander in chief clause authority. There's a direct citation there in 1988 Supreme Court case called Department of the Navy versus Egan. So we, to this day, at least until the affidavit is unsealed, we have no idea whether this was already declassified. It's arguable that the inherent act of taking documents away from the White House to Mar-a-Lago might've ipso facto declassified it by the very act of that nature. Final very brief question is this whole nuclear secrets thing, which I think is going to be more Ben segment next time, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. You know, if that is the case, then why the heck did this wait over 18 months? I mean, if you actually have nuclear secrets floating around, that is itself grounds for impeachment of Merrick Garland on gross incompetence grounds. So that's my two cents on this. I'll get off my soapbox. Unfortunately, this story, I think, is just as bad now as it was a week ago, though. Yeah, I have, I have really brief remarks on this, honestly. Um, the media has breathlessly carried water for every single overlapping, and as Josh points out, completely nonsensical explanation for this, right? First, it was the, the Presidential Records Act alone. That's non-criminal, right? There aren't criminal penalties attached to it. Then it was, oh, but it's classified documents, and that's the criminal aspect of this. That's impossible. In my view, it will be extremely close to impossible to actually uh, indict Donald Trump or convict him on that because all he has to say, as I said last time, is I declassified these documents before I took them from the White House. Um, I don't know how they're going to prove that he didn't do that, even if he didn't do it. Um, and then, uh, you know, now we had, then we had this nuclear secrets thing, right? Like exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, nuclear secrets, which as Josh rightly points out, doesn't make any sense why they would delay this long if, if truly the, you know, sort of codes to launch are floating around, potentially getting into the hands of, of uh, enemies of, of America. Um, and then just on a smaller matter, of course, we had the whole news cycle about, oh, no, they didn't actually take Donald Trump's passports. Well, it turns out they did. Um, and, and so there's been no apology as each new, of course, uh, each new explanation from the regime has just been trotted out in, in, through the corporate media with like no pushback at all each time. Um, and, and to me, what the, these changing explanations really add up to is, is that our initial impressions are correct, that this is fundamentally pretextual. 
right? That that uh, this this issue with the classified documents, they probably know this is not going to stick, but they wanted the FBI wanted to root around in the former president's house and potential future domestic political opponent's house. So, I mean, th that again is, is getting very close to show me the man, I'll show you the crime, right? They're just hoping that they find something else, maybe related to January 6th hearings, maybe something else. They're hoping they find something else incriminating in his house. So they used an excuse, a very pretextual, unserious excuse again to break 200 nearly 250 years of precedent of not starting um to to give the impression uh, in this case increasingly the right impression that uh the apparatus the justice apparatus of this country is completely at service of one of the two political parties um and then a final point i just want to make a note you know there's a lot of issues here about who gets the benefit of the doubt right there's a lot of yes obviously we all have to to some extent wait for the facts to come out um, I don't think the FBI and the Justice Department have earned the benefit of the doubt, not only in the four years that of, of the, the Russia hoax and um, that investigation and the, and, and the Mueller report and all of that, um, but also in the way that they have classified parents as domestic terrorists in that memo. I don't think that we owe them any more benefit of the doubt. I think it is now on the institutions more broadly, and I'm sure Emily will pick up on this point, to rebuild trust actively in the American people um, who have lost it for good reason, um, have lost that trust for good reason. And it's now on those institutions to clean themselves up if they find that possible. Now, I realize that's very naive. I'm not saying that they're gonna do that overnight. They seem to have no inclination to do that. But in terms of, of who has the burden here, it's with the institutions now to rebuild trust with the American people. It's not with the American people to give them blind benefit of the doubt. Well, we heard last week, just wait, just wait, just wait. Um, don't rush to judgment. Uh, give the FBI the benefit of the doubt. Uh, we heard that like constantly last week. And I think now that we're, uh, we have a, a week in the rearview mirror, as Josh says, this looks worse. Um, it continues to look worse because they haven't showed us any reason uh, why the precedent was broken. And instead, they keep saying, listen, we want the president of the United States to be treated just like any other citizen would. And generally, I think that's that's absolutely true. But when you have a raid on their home over the Espionage Act, um, we know who they like to prosecute with the Espionage Act. Uh, we know how they like to wield the Espionage Act. Um, and, and so in this case, it seems absolutely ridiculous. Um, I forget who said it, like, remind me uh, when they raided uh, Hillary Clinton's Chappaqua home uh, over her classified material. And we know that while Hillary Clinton was pursued under the Obama administration, so not a political opponent, um, the, the, the treatment here is not, it is not similar at all in any way whatsoever. It's very much, so be the man and I'll show you the crime. Uh, that's what's going on here. And the more time that passes, uh, the, the clearer it is. So I'll kick it over to Ben. Well, let me just point out one other point that I, I'm not sure we noted, which is that, of course, the DOJ has fought tooth and nail to avoid having to unseal the affidavit underlying the search warrant. So if they had nothing to hide, once again, they wouldn't hide behind the fact that essentially just like the intelligence apparatus, national security apparatus does all the time when it doesn't want concealed its misdeeds, uh, it claims confidentiality concerns and the like, while, of course, they go after former President Trump's privileged documents and attorney, executive privileged documents and then attorney privileged documents, it appears. Um, it's also worth noting here that the search warrant itself self-evidently served as a fishing expedition. I mean, leave aside whatever the stated rationales were, Espionage Act, 
uh, handling classified materials or otherwise. And you know the legal merits of that argument about what a president can do and if a president can de facto or de jure declassify just by taking the documents and that Trump supposedly had a standing order about when he takes documents that they are then declassified. Setting aside all those arguments, on its face, the warrant itself allowed them to rifle through basically any and every record under the sun from 2017 through 2021. So I think we all know here that this is a show me the man and I'll show you the crime sort of scenario. And the last point is that when they talk about no one is above the law here, what they mean is they're above the law. And as always, Trump has has been and will always be treated below the law like no other president or political figure of his prominence to come before him. And that's how you have an analogous situation here of going after him on Espionage Act grounds or Presidential Record Act grounds, just like going after Logan Act violations when it, or, or acting as if they're going after Logan Act violations with respect to Michael Flynn. They raise all these novel grounds, which self-evidently, once again, it's a tell. It shows you specifically that this is all pretextual. And this is about someone that they want to shackle or at least hang this around him uh, to prevent him or make it very hard for him to run again in 2024 because they fear him. And I think that's a that's a segue into my segment, which, and Josh sort of alluded to this, I thought it was perhaps most telling that in those sorts of cursory uh, defenses put forth, first by Christopher Ray, when a reporter, it seems, fed him a question uh, at a press conference, and then by Merrick Garland, that their immediate focus, the, the turn that they made was to the fact that we are going to defend the professional men and women of the FBI and DOJ who are under withering assault here totally unjustifiably in an unhinged fashion. The fact that they turned to play the victim card almost immediately in the wake of the outrage that their acts generated on the merits among tens of millions of Americans, essentially gaslighting us into thinking that it's a totally normal law enforcement activity to raid the house of a former president, which has never been done before on these sorts of shoddy grounds, was incredibly telling. Basically, it told you that they could not justify their actions the, on the optics or on the merits whatsoever. So they had to go after and attack and criticize and use as a shield, essentially, the fact that, no, it's actually their opponents who are unhinged, and not only unhinged, but a threat to the life and limb of the men and women of the FBI and DOJ. And I mean, setting aside, of course, the double standard here, the UFI people breaking federal law in menacing protesting outside the homes of Supreme Court justices amid death threats against the Supreme Court justices and literal attacks to life and limb of those who might hold the same views as justices on an issue like abortion. The, the feds did not take that so seriously. Uh, this is a tell, and it's a tell that they're going to use the outrage against the FBI and DOJ, and then of course cause for potentially defunding or breaking up these institutions as a way that they can then exploit the outrage over their actions to pursue wrong thinkers even more deeply. And this is, of course, a theme that I've been pursuing here and elsewhere uh, for months now. Already, there are bulletins going out among the intelligence community, the defense community, uh, Customs and Border Patrol as well, essentially saying, be prepared for attacks on federal officials in light of the Mar-a-Lago raid and the reaction to it. There was one individual who they've tried to link to Trump, who in, in Cincinnati area, I believe, uh, sought to shoot at, I, I believe, uh, FBI officials or an FBI facility. And obviously, of course, all conservatives abjure and completely deplore and decry 
these acts of violence, but these acts of violence are going to be hung around the heads of the tens of millions of peaceful, law-abiding Americans who are rightfully outraged at the just as deplorable acts of a weaponized national security apparatus undermining the rule of law, undermining our republic in service of pursuing wrong thinkers. And we can hold both these ideas in our head at the same time. Obviously, lashing out at law enforcement is wrong. So are the actions of law enforcement. Law enforcement does not want to deal with the legitimate criticism of its own actions. And so consequently, I think, and I'm going to, I've been writing about this, going to write about this further in the coming months, I think you're going to see a massive effort to go after, particularly on social media, wrong thinkers to put out threat bulletins claiming that there's a massively increased threat here and to hang this around the necks of MAGA and basically continue to drive home the narrative as I've been, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, but actually arguing, which is that, you know, Trump is essentially the leader of a MAGA terrorist army and that he and his minions are provoking and inciting others to violence. They are going to use rhetoric around criticizing their actions and conflate it with actual threats to the life and limb of the FBI and DOJ. We shouldn't stand for it. We should condemn it. And we should hold them to account just as we hold anyone who would use violence against innocent people to account as well. I see this playing out. And last thing I'll note, and I'm going to raise this in a couple pieces, one of the key sources of information claiming that there's this inflamed rhetoric, unhinged rhetoric on social media and holding up these accounts is someone named Daniel J. Jones. Dan Jones is a former Feinstein staffer who played a key role in propagating much of the Russiagate information operation. And he has been one of the key sources used by media, including Vice News, NBC News, and others, because his organization is the one looking for these crazed, unhinged social media, anonymous social media accounts being used to make the case that there is a now a massive threat. Now, all that said, Trump himself said the temperature ought to be lowered. I totally agree. But it's incumbent upon law enforcement, the DOJ, FBI, and this administration to lower that temperature by addressing the legitimate criticism that they're facing right now. With that, I turn it over to the group. I continue to find it very funny that just before the FBI did this, there was media controversy over the Trump administration's uh, or, or the, the potential future Trump administration's plans to gut the administrative state because uh, it, it, they then just proved everybody they were mocking right like this there is no way and then morning joe i don't know if you guys saw this had peter struck on to talk about how the fbi is neutral and is not trying to go after one person or the other for partisan reasons which when it was sent in our staff chat i said i have a very hard time believing this is real <laughs> i don't know how it could possibly exist and yet it does and in it actually scarborough confronts struck and says you know your text messages like brings it up um so it's not as though he's not aware of what peter struck did it's that he realizes exactly what peter struck did and thinks it's no big deal because trump right because donald trump is uh exceptional and requires thus exceptional use of uh administrative force and uh you know intelligence force and that in fact is one thing they can't wrap their head around that perhaps uh, Donald Trump should be treated 
um, in the same way that you would treat a, a regular Republican, because to the voters, Donald Trump is who they chose through our Republican democratically elected process. Um, that's what happened. And thus, he deserves to be treated that way. Uh, they just hate the voters so much. Remember those text messages that Scarborough didn't bring up about the smell of Walmart? I believe that was Peter Strzok. Um, that tells you exactly what you need to know. It's not partisan. They're right. It's exactly, it's not partisan. It's not about Republicans or Democrats. Um, it's about people they have contempt for uh, culturally, ideologically. So no, you, you, I guess they're right, right? Like it's, it's not a partisan thing. It's just about uh, the, the people that they have contempt for. And I think that's co just continuing to be abundantly clear um, the more we learn. So I mean, yeah. one thing that, oh, 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 go ahead and ask it. I was just going to say that um, I, I agree with Emily that, that, but I guess I would just give a different different explanation. It, it, they don't see it as ideological. That's how they can say these things. Like Peter Strzok can say this with a, a straight face, right? They they are surrounded by people for whom the idea that Trump is a democracy threatening Hitler is the normal baseline, right? Um, and they don't see it as like partisan. They don't think of it as partisan. Um, and that, that's a larger problem with all of these institutions is that they share these assumptions about, you know, essentially about the last 30 years in which they're very, very out of touch with perhaps 70 or 80% of Americans on left and right. Um, but they don't see that disagreement as a legitimate disagreement within democracy. They see the ideas that they've been advancing on both both party lines, right? But but this particular class that agrees with each other has been advancing for 30 years. They see those ideas as synonymous with liberal democracy, which is why you get those like absolutely absurd contradictory statements about, you know, things like Roe v. Wade being overturned, being, you know, a threat to democracy when it literally gives the issue of abortion back to people to vote on, right? It that that is that fundamental underlying ideology of this blob in, in these in this class of people in our institutions who just do not see disagreement with them on anything fundamentally of substance anything that would actually change the direction and structure of this country and more importantly probably to them who's in power in this country they don't they no longer see that as a legitimate thing to be adjudicated through the democratic process and that's why they think they i don't think this is one cackling guy I, this is this an institutional problem. And um, with that, I'll, I'll, I'll let Josh close us out here. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot to add. I mean, I, I guess just the button that I will put on this segment is I think one thing that the raid has done inadvertently and unintentionally, though it may be, has really consolidated right of center sentiment insofar as things that we've said on this podcast for a long time now, which is that the national security apparatus of the intelligence community is kind of the tip of the spear of the deep state and is a massive, massive problem. So, you know, put another way, as recently as just like a month or two ago, in kind of the, in the pre-raid era, right, in those halcyon days, in the pre-raid era, I think you might have seen somewhat of a generational divide insofar as kind of the the boomer cons, for lack of a better term, those who, you know, who are kind of like the, you know, the chest thumping Reaganized, they probably still kind of like defaulted to kind of de facto support for the FBI, or for the CIA. Um, you know, I mean, someone like Sean Hannity wearing the literal CIA lapel pin, I think is a good example of that. 
But I think when you see so viscerally, like it, like a national epical moment, like the like a pre-dawn raid on a former president of the United States, that's a really kind of galvanizing, unifying moment for the right of center insofar as the future of the national security apparatus is concerned. We've put up some great content and music opinion on this and kind of just a shameless plug. Um, you know, Liz Wheeler, uh, on the day that we're recording this today, has a really great piece just entitled Abolish the FBI. I think Liz, frankly, speaks for many. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see just how quickly Republicans take action on that exact front when they retake the House come January. So um, just to, to wrap up that discussion, unfortunately, I do think that's the most important story and will continue to be the most important story going forward uh, because it is it has such, you know, sort of Republic earthquake consequences. But um, that being said, there are some other important things that happened in the last week. And, and chief among those is uh, the stabbing of, of Salman Rushdie, the author of Satanic Verses um, in upstate New York by almost certainly somebody following up on the fatwa that has been on his head uh, now for, for over 30 years, I believe, um, and has necessitated that he travel with armed guards that you know, I guess he, after 30 years, he didn't, uh, his guards got lazy or, or complacent or um, he, he didn't have them. Uh, but unfortunately, he is seriously injured. Um, the latest news is that he has come off the ventilator, that he is on the road to recovery, but that he will probably lose his eye. Um, he's also dealing with stab wounds all over his body, I believe his liver, his arm. So uh, very serious life-changing injuries for Salman Rushdie. Um, what I wanted to, to sort of bring up before I throw it out for larger discussion is, is simply the response and how muted the response has been to this. And, and if it had been muted because of what we were just talking about, I would understand. Um, but that, I don't think that that's the whole the whole story here. Unfortunately, um, th there isn't any real way for our our mainstream institutions to strongly condemn this in, in exactly the language that it needs to be condemned and by embracing the Western tradition. Um, of, of free speech and embracing the American tradition of free speech, because that tradition itself is not embraced uh, largely by our elites. So, you know, they condemn violence in sort of this mild mannered sort of way. Um, that's very much what the Biden administration put out on this. But I, I think it is largely impossible for an elite and um, for our institutions that fundamentally don't think that the American way of life is something that is good, valuable, or worth defending, um, they, they really can't put out uh, a, a full-throated defense of free speech and therefore can only, only sort of put out again this mealy-mouthed uh, statement that, that sort of condemns that violence happens um, without actually pointing to why this particular violence happens. A last brief point would be, um, you know, it's interesting because so many of these things hit so differently for us today. They almost seem like uh, here, like I'm thinking of, of drone strikes on, on Al Zarari. I can't say his name, um, or or some of these other uh, issues that seem almost part of a, a different different world, a different political landscape uh, with di different political concerns. I think that just underscores how far our country has gone um, away from what we're important concerns that every you know every nation deals with um you know the, the world stage various forces every every country confronts world events every country confronts domestic disagreement but but the fact that even something this fundamental seems almost um like a sideshow to us or maybe you guys don't feel that way but it, it feels very different than i would have felt about it um 
you know, even even let's say 10 years ago or, or, or five years ago. And that's not because that issue itself has has waned at all in importance. It's just that our country is so broken in even more fundamental ways that like the, the, the problem is that we can't even we can't even put forward like we would have been able to 10 or 20, 30 years ago, at least from the institutions, we can't put forward that kind of actual defense of, of the American value of free speech. And that itself, I think, is is just tragic. And, and you know, other than than just to say that, of course, um, we we really uh, keep Salman Rushdie in our thoughts, hope he makes a full recovery as much as, as possible with these very serious injuries. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I'll just chime in and give kind of the Iran take on this, for lack of a better way of phrasing it. Um, so Salman Rushdie has had a what the mullahs in Tehran refer to as a fatwa, which is a religious edict calling for an assassination. I mean, the man has literally had a bounty on his head for a, as long as probably the four of us have been alive. I mean, I think it was like in the in the late 1980s, specifically when that fatwa came came into being there. And the fact that you know decades later that someone kind of deepened the bowels of the U.S. and um, you know, based on the reporting that I've seen thus far, it does seem like this individual had fairly direct contact with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which, of course, is the Iranian regime's military wing. You know, it's just it's just a reminder as to, as to the the evil nature, frankly, of the of the Iranian regime. And, and that regime obviously has been in power since the revolution in 1979. And it, it just kind of, I think, from a geopolitical perspective, also just shines a spotlight on how utterly bad crap insane it is that in the aftermath of this, which, by the way, came fairly shortly after it was unveiled that the IRGC was also trying to pay people in the U.S. to assassinate John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, in the aftermath of all of these events, we are still not firmly and unequivocally walking away from the negotiating table to try to get the resuscitation, the revitalization of Barack Obama's nuclear deal. So I, 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 unbelievable. I mean, I mean, you know, you would think that, um, you know, the, the Bolton-Pompeo story alone, let alone this should really get them to thoroughly denounce even kind of flirting with the idea of making the Iran deal great again. It obviously was never great to begin with. I'm being sarcastic. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of just my take as well. I think Inez kind of captured kind of the free speech element quite well. But um, yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I mean, uh, uh, Dennis Prager's column this week, I thought also hit on a good point. And then I'll toss it over to Ben and Emily. Dennis Prager's column this week was basically just saying that the, the reality remains in the year 2022, uh, not just when it comes to the Iranian regime, although Iran is kind of front and center for this. You know, when you criticize the Quran, when you criticize the Prophet Muhammad, if you're going to caricature it, in not the entire global Islamic world obviously is going to call for your death, but many will. I mean, I mean, this is we saw what happened in Charlie Hebdo's office, obviously in Paris in 2015. Theo Van Gogh, um, you know, the Dutch filmmaker who was assassinated for doing something similar back in the Netherlands in 2004, I think the year was. This tragically is not that that rare of an occurrence, and it does just kind of shine another spotlight on the fact that we have many radical people out there in the broader Islamic world who think that saying anything even remotely offending uh, about their prophet, about their religion, means that you should have a death sentence about it. So I'll be real brief. I concur in Josh's uh, remarks here. It's also worth noting that you can look at this as another security failure of our law enforcement apparatus while they continue to pursue everyone and their mother who they don't like. And on the point about you know, free speech broadly, and it's worth noting you know, that the, the fatwa 
which was on Rushdie's head and these other attacks have been uh, undertaken under the under the aegis of Sharia law, that the Sharia speech code violations and the punishments to be meted out under them, you know, we have something like a secular version of that that has developed in the Western world. It doesn't necessarily call for violence against speech you don't like, but it certainly calls for a massive censorship regime, cancellation, threatening people, uh, and perhaps even violence on that. And that is maybe the saddest aspect of all, which is that the West itself is no longer a haven for speech of its own volition. And sort of in an analog to our dealings with China, we've become more like them than they have become like us to some extent when it comes to uh, our devotion and adherence to genuine free speech and discourse in the West. So this is a tragedy, obviously. Uh, thankfully, he has survived this assault. Uh, and last but not least, this, of course, gives lie uh, to the notion that the Biden administration, while continuing to negotiate full speed ahead and Iran deal, cares anything uh, for human rights, let alone the national interest here. Oh, and last but not least, I cannot believe, but it actually did happen. Uh, several benighted members of our media did go out and, and pose the question legitimately. We still don't know what the motive was for these this assassination attempt you literally you cannot make this up but that is literally what those in the media were questioning in the aftermath of this unbelievable you know this topic is oddly enough a decent segue into the one that we'll be covering next um which is afghanistan but what i will say uh now is we have uh we have put so much blood sweat and tears into the Western societies and the freedom that we enjoy here in Western societies. And it is a superior way to uh, engage and create policy and to create culture and to uh, do all of these different things that we completely uh, lack our appreciation for on a daily basis, right? Like this, the world feels so grim um, and everyone feels so pessimistic. Um, but in a, in a way, this is as an aberration, um, as, an, as an exception to what happens when people speak in the United States of America and in Western society, a reminder that we have not fully lost this um, and that we this is something we have now um, and people have died for our rights to uh, enjoy these freedoms and it is better it is better it is wonderful it is a blessing and we are so so enormously lucky um, to be living in these these cultures that we live in, um, where we can sort of hash these things out, and we are at risk of losing those freedoms um, for for ridiculous reasons. And these these culture clashes, um, in some ways, are reminders of that. Um, this is this is the better way. Um, this is the better way to enable human flourishing and to to live together. And there are those who don't want that. Um, there are those who don't believe that is the right way to go about things. And, and they're wrong. We can have a sense of moral clarity here. They are wrong. If you need to stab somebody um, for exercising creative speech, that's that our way of life is better. Um, and our our laws are better. And our ideas about this are better. So on that note, I'll, I'll toss it over to Inez if she has any final thoughts or wants to segue. I, I'll toss it right back to you and let's talk about Afghanistan. Well, it, yeah, this is a decent segue because there was this 
uh, temptation uh, 20 or so years ago to nation build uh, when we, after 9-11, for some very understandable reasons, uh, wanted to be, wanted to stamp out those terrorists who wanted to destroy the American way of life um, in different regions of the Middle East, uh, but reasons that, well, they may be sort of understandable uh, from an, an emotional perspective, even from a rational perspective, were not uh, honestly represented by uh, people in power. And uh, that went on for years and years. And the war in Afghanistan is a sad and tragic symbol of all of that. Um, if you look at the Afghanistan papers and the way that war was represented uh, by people in power, and now here we are a year after the Biden administration's disastrous withdrawal, um, and we know that there are main terrorist operatives just on, on balconies in Kabul, um, as the drone strike earlier this month showed, the just comfortable enough to be on, on balconies in Kabul. And again, obviously, uh, Zahiri was killed by an American drone strike. But uh, the fact that there was that level of comfortability um, in Kabul a year after we left, I think really shows a couple of things. One, that this, this warfare by drone, uh, when used properly, when used ethically, is in some ways a replacement for a full-scale occupation um, and a, a sort of uh, ground war. And two, that everything we said was necessary uh, for a very long time in that place um, didn't have the effects that we said we were expending these American resources uh, to, to have. And we now know that Taliban rule in Afghanistan is, to those of us in the West, looks completely um, what, what is the right word? I mean, completely arcane um, and cruel. And indeed, there's a plenty of evidence that's what's happening um, now that the Taliban, uh, which was supposed to be a kinder and gentler Taliban, uh, is is in control of Afghanistan. And just for the last year, there, there has been this need, and I think every single one of us probably agrees, to kind of split the hair, right? That in a sense, you know, the Biden administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan was horrible. Well, at the same time, getting out of Afghanistan, out of Afghanistan and scaling back uh, dramatically our operation there was the right call. Um, and it's not that's not a sort of easy hair to split, but it's it's perfectly compatible. I mean, there's no mutual exclusivity there. Um, you can say that it was right for us to scale back in Afghanistan and, and Biden did it in the worst possible way. Um, and that continues to be true every time we look back on this. The only reason we're not talking about this more is because the economy is such a mess. Um, it, otherwise, this would be, I think, a front and center American disgrace. Um, the way that our, our troops were treated, uh, the way that our resources were treated, it's truly a, an embarrassment and a shame. So I'll toss it open to the group and just ask, now that we have a year out of this 20-year war, we are marking the one-year anniversary of the withdrawal of this 20-year post-9-11 war, um, are there any, is, is there anything that stands out to all of you, any lessons that have emerged over the course of the last year? Well, let me just say up front, just to compound the errors here, and we, we probably all agree to one extent or another 
that we should have gone out on gotten out of Afghanistan and likely a lot sooner than we did, but that it was executed in the most disastrous possible way for an incompetent way for US national interest. In fact, if you wanted to damage US national interest to maximum extent in a withdrawal, it's not clear what you would have done differently. On top of that, and this goes back to what was the proper response to 9-11 in and of itself, and how did 9-11 happen in the first place, and what measures would you take to prevent it from ever happening again? We, of course, had a terrible vetting program now, such that there appear to be terrorists in this country as a consequence of those we let in through refugee resettlement subsequent to the Afghanistan pullout. So it's making the same mistakes again over 20 years later in the withdrawal. Uh, which is remarkable. It goes back to, again, how do you harden your homeland? It starts with immigration being the first thing, uh, which our elite still refuse to acknowledge, internalize, and react accordingly. Uh, but the other thing that I'll say is, and there's an analog here too, when it comes to the national security, law enforcement, intelligence apparatus, more broadly, I, I've made the case, and obviously you can go back even before this, but the fact that no one paid a price for Russiagate guaranteed that we would have still far worse outrages and abuses, depredations from our deep state going forward. The same thing applies here in foreign policy, which is that there has been no reckoning for the individuals who oversaw the rampant corruption, incompetence, and disasters for American national interests that transpired in the quagmire that was Afghanistan. You know, we can all look back at those old SIGAR reports, the Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, and see the mass of failures associated with the entire enterprise. And enterprise is probably the right word uh, that we undertook there. Um, also, to Emily's point, the Afghanistan papers, well worth reading. They expose a whole raft of failures in the military, which to our knowledge have never really been addressed. So there's been no reckoning in terms of what the purpose was of the Afghanistan mission in the first place, how it was executed, what the underlying assumptions were that were wrong, what you would do to correct it going forward in the Middle East and outside the Middle East. There's been zero reckoning. And now we're in Ukraine to the tune of tens of billions of dollars and growing. So I think it shows you that they learned no lessons because no one ever pays a price. There is no accountability for malfeasance, corruption, and even worse, potentially criminality here. And so because there is no appetite to do so, it just guarantees far worse cataclysmic events going forward. I'll, I'll jump in and, and follow up on something that Ben said. Um, it's true, there've been absolutely no consequences. And just looking at the withdrawal as a microcosm for the larger lack of consequences, um, there have been no consequences for anyone for the lives of the 13 US service members who are killed completely unnecessarily uh, in this totally botched and incompetent withdrawal. And thus far, the only person who has been disciplined for that entire affair is Latern uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Stuart Scheller Jr. If anybody, I may be mispronouncing his name, but if anybody remembers his crime, of course, was to actually criticize the military brass for the way that this was conducted, which he did in full recognition of the consequences, and he took those consequences. Um, he was court-martialed for it, um, and he knew that would happen. And, and again, I understand why the military has to court-martial um, this lieutenant colonel, because he publicly criticized the chain of command. I understand perfectly why a military cannot tolerate that. I think he understands 
in his statements, he makes it very clear he understands why a military cannot tolerate that and he accepts the consequences uh, for, for speaking out. But it is completely intolerable to me that he is the only person thus far in that entire botched affair who has suffered so, you know, pardon my, my French here, but he, no one else has suffered a damn consequence for this, just this one guy, this one guy who actually was brave enough to say this was awful and this is on the top brass, this is on the, the um, leadership of the military, the deaths of these 13 U.S. members, uh, service members, and of, of the humiliation of the U.S. in front of the world in this withdrawal. So I, I, I like Ben, I think this is a largely a microcosm, not only of, of Afghanistan, um, and, and the way we've conducted the war there, but also, you know, the entire, largely our entire system is, is shot through not only with ideology, um, but with incompetence. Uh, and and in, in the case of the military, that ideology and incompetence, it costs, you know, the lives of some of the best of us. So I'll, I'll, I'll let some, I'll let, uh, is it that? Me. Tough act to follow there. That was, that was wonderfully impassioned. Kudos. Um, so look, I mean, Emily kind of led off the sentence by saying, what's the lesson? I mean, the lesson is, or at least should be obvious. I mean, this is kind of the, the exact title of my New York Post column after the botch withdrawal, which was, I, I'm paraphrasing here, the title was like, Afghanistan's lesson, no nation building ever again. I mean, like, duh, that, that is the obvious lesson that we should be taking away from this. Unfortunately, you know, as uh, one of the, I think was Ben alluded to, as we see in the Russia-Ukraine fisticuffs, and specifically the U.S. reaction and kind of allocating these tens of billions of dollars and this fiscally irresponsible, reckless boondoggle of, of, of these bills, we have clearly not learned that lesson. And, you know, it just reminds me, you know, uh, uh, Angela Cotavilla posthumously published a book on, on John Quincy Adams, who was kind of in, in many ways an underappreciated and underrated statesman. You know, John Quincy Adams uh, has this famous this famous uh, piece of writing from 1821, I believe the year was, when he was still Secretary of State. He was not yet president yet. And again, I'm paraphrasing. I don't have this quote memorized verbatim, but he he basically says, you know, I, America is the well-wisher for the world as far as liberty is concerned, but America is the guarantor only of her own, only only of her own people. And that's a that's a very crucial and important distinction. Okay, I mean, we can wish other nations well, but the reality is obviously not all cultures are equal. This is kind of a core national conservatism ideal, right? Is that not all cultures are the same? We all have our own customs and traditions. Not everyone necessarily aspires to the exact same conception of, you know, Lockean Enlightenment liberalism. Let alone when they're kind of you know cave dwellers in like the, in like an Islamist backwater third world hellhole like Afghanistan, like shocker of the century. I realize, right? So we can we. We can wish everyone well in kind of their pursuit of human rights and liberty and all of that, but we have to stay humble. And unfortunately, I really do fear that a lot of this this fiscally reckless kind of um, allocation of money to uh, the very corrupt nation, Ukraine, and all the Ukrainian flags and social media, it just seems to me it's quite tragic that we are not learning the lessons, unfortunately, I think of Afghanistan. So uh, we're going to transition to final thoughts, and, and I'll, I'll just kick it off myself. Um, I, I think to return to the domestic for a moment, um, I'd like to recommend this article uh, by Kyle Schindler uh, over at American Greatness, um, for the rule of law to reign, the bureau must be destroyed. Um, and, and the reason I really want to commend this article is I think it's an example of the thinking that is so missing 
oftentimes in the national conservative sphere or in the new right more broadly, um, it, it is a, a practical and informed and serious policy proposal of how to cabin the most essential functions that actually are needed in the FBI and how to depoliticize the FBI. This is the kind of actual work that is really necessary. So often I feel like kind of trapped or bounced between um, in sort of a core agreement uh, on the one hand, with the goals of the new right, and obviously understanding that the institutions are are not are no longer essentially something that the right should want to preserve if they want to preserve any of the content of conservatism of American conservatism. Um, so with there, I'm, I'm very like sort of new righty. Um, but then I often look at some of the policy proposals, and it, it truly is it, it's sort of the, the the blessing and the curse of being sort of coming from the outside, from outside of the political establishments. Uh, there are so few people who are actually serious uh, in, in any like sphere about actually putting, um, you know, policy pen to paper, so to speak, uh, and, and actually having a concrete agenda that really does curtail um, the power, in this case of, of a particular agency, trying to really like put forward a policy proposal to, to seriously solve some of these issues. Oftentimes, I feel like that's that's like completely missing that there is no policy bench because um, this this movement is essentially sort of uh, reactionary in some way and 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 has required moving outside of the establishment. That means that that it desperately needs its own not only its rhetoricians, uh, its writers, its uh, commentators um, like like the four of us here, but it desperately needs uh, some concrete you know rubber meets road kind of uh, policy proposals to get from where we are to where we know that we need to be if we save the country so that's why i just want to commend this article i think it's an example of what, what we really need going forward uh, i'll be brief i concur I, I shared that article widely as well in part because it comes from a place of someone who believes staunchly in defending america's national interest sees these national security apparatus institutions damaging that interest uh, in the name of preserving and protecting it. And it does lay out practical, tangible ways that we can actually go about, if not abolishing some of these institutions that have been wholly corrupted and undermined, uh, how you go about reorganizing them within our apparatus such that they actually work towards their core missions of protecting and preserving our liberty and justice in this country from those who would oppose it. Um, briefly on that point, however, and this goes back to my segment, I did want to note that again, you'll note uh, my hobby horse here, national strategy for countering domestic terrorism that the Biden administration put out. What does it say? It says that the preeminent Le most lethal threat to the homeland comes from domestic violent extremists who are driven by either a racial or ethnic animus or the, the words used are anti-government or anti-authority individuals. Well, if you embrace the idea that you ought to abolish one of these institutions or defund them and use every power possible to, to hem them in, you are going to be cast as anti-government or anti-authority. So they have set up a paradigm or tried to set up a paradigm such that if you oppose them, you present the most lethal threat to the homeland or you're inciting those people or provoking those people. And so that's why I expect a massive intensification of an information operation, of course, buoyed by our media, working hand in glove with our national security apparatus to claim that those members of Congress who would dare talk about uh, combating a corrupted national security apparatus or individual man on the street, et cetera, 
that they present the preeminent threat to the country. And it goes right along with those who have questions about election integrity, those who question the draconian COVID regime, even though that suddenly disappeared very quietly and beyond. Uh, we should be awake to this. They are going to make that argument and it's incumbent upon us not to take that bait, uh, to dismiss their argument and to make the case that if you care about defending our republic, not our democracy, because we're not one, then it is incumbent upon us to actually have the real rule of law and not a weaponized and hyper-politicized national security apparatus turned on the American people. And I just want to pick up on that point really quickly, because if you look at the Salman Rushdie example, and if you look at um, the exactly everything Ben just talked about, what's happening from the political establishment is an attempt to uh, to suppress anyone who wants to come with a solution that challenges their power. Right. So to if you have an idea that is traditional and accurate about biology, for instance, what they want to do is uh, restrict the boundaries of speech such that you cannot uh, you cannot advocate for your position without being labeled a bigot or a conspiracy theorist. And the same is true on the national security front. If you believe in, let's say, abolishing the FBI, if you believe that these institutions are deeply corrupt, which seems very difficult to uh, ignore at this point, if you think that, um, you know, all of us can have this conversation here sure um but to be taken seriously in the halls of power would be virtually impossible because you are going to be labeled a conspiracy theorist you are going to be labeled um a a domestic terrorism threat uh in one way or the other and the goal is to su is to su suppress dissent um and you see it across all fronts and i'm not sure how well it's it's working um because i think you know the reality that people are waking up to it um and we still as we talked about in the rushdie segment have a beautiful wonderful system um even though the administrative state would like to crush it and seize uh, control away from voters we still have this system um, and so I think, you know, there, there are some, there is some reason for optimism, but it's a race against the clock. How quickly can they suppress um, the challenges to their power uh, in, in time for us to you know, save what we have, which is, which is truly wonderful. So I want to very briefly go in an, an entirely unrelated direction. So it's good that I went last year. So I was out in the state of Wyoming this past weekend. I, I was not actually campaigning for Harriet Hageman, although funny story, I actually did split a van from the Jackson Hole Airport to downtown Jackson, Wyoming, to the extent that that town has a downtown, um, with a U.S. congressman who actually was in town to campaign for Harriet Hageman against Liz Cheney. So he flew all the way out there. So, um, you know, kudos to him. But I was in town actually to speak at a, at a pro-life lawmaker summit organized by Live Action, which is Lila Rose's organization. And this summit was basically roughly 30, maybe to 40 strategic kind of state lawmakers, kind of those who were very active in, in pro-life fight. And I spoke on, on two panels, one kind of doing my bread and butter topic of Constitution, Dobbs, um, and in particular, I was kind of there with my good friend, Josh Craddock. We were kind of talking about the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause argument for constitutional personhood. But the other panel that I talked on was really, really interesting. And I, I think it's something that maybe we can come back to on a future episode of this podcast which was they did we, we we had a whole panel basically on family policy which you've kind of seen like renewed attention to in the Republican party so Senator Romney has family security 2.0 act um, so I was on this panel um, with uh, my friend Eric Tietzel, who's been in Senator Josh Hawley's office for, for a number of years now, and Erica Bakioki of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And the three of us basically all support some variation of family policy. 
But you could see that there was a lot of pushback among kind of these largely Republican, although there were some the pro-life Democrats there, but the larger Republicans say lawmakers, I'd say some were firmly on board of the agenda, some were decisively not, and you kind of heard a lot of the old talking points, right? How is this any different than just Lyndon Johnson, Great Society? How is this just not welfare and so forth? So it was really kind of like a healthy kind of intellectual tension. I think you kind of, we kind of saw this summit kind of these tensions playing out in real time between kind of the Orrin Cassie wing of, of political economy and kind of the more traditional kind of AEI wing, for lack of a better term. So uh, it was just very um, enlightening for me to kind of see that play out in real time. And I kind of have a stance as as, a, as opposed to those two warring factions. But it's just very interesting how this is going to play out over the Republican Party over the next few years. So we'll come back to that in a future podcast, I'm sure. And with that, from some of the FBI's potential domestic terrorists on behalf of Ben, Emily, Josh, um, thanks for tuning in. I'm Inez Stepan, and we'll see you at the next NAFCON squad.